Hi everyone, welcome to Accents, a radio show for literature, art and culture on WKY. My name is Katerina Stojkova, I'm your host, and with me today is poet T. Krang. Hi Tony. Good morning Katerina, how are you? Doing really well and very excited to talk to you. Oh, it's so nice to be here, thank you for having me. Well, I know that you have been working on some, in my opinion, wonderful new poetry. Would you call it poetry? Uh, I think I have to. It's it's in prose form, and it's mostly uh, nonfiction, but there's enough fiction in there that I can't call it nonfiction. But, uh, so you suggested that we just call it poetry, and I'm good with that. I think so. I think that there is no genre that would contain it better and I am so excited about your work. Please describe it to our listeners and treat a little bit. I, I, call, I, I call the genre creative quasi-fiction. It's all true, but only partly factual. How's that? <laughs> as long as it's emotionally <laughs> true, it's poetry, right? I appreciate that. I'll take your word for it. Here's a piece, a piece from a, a new collection. <clears throat> I hope to be coming out soon. The collection is entitled Hopkinsville. And here's the first piece in it. It's entitled Hobo Signs. It was my mother's job to look for hobo signs. They would be scratched on the wall of the shed or on one of the trash barrels or one of the fence slats with chalk or charcoal or a knife. She even found them scratched into the cross ties of the tracks running just behind the fence. She didn't know what any of them meant but she knew they told you whether you were welcome at a certain house, whether it was a good place to stop for food or clothes or work, or whether it was best not to stop. Her job was to rub them off or scratch over them so you couldn't tell what they were. Her father said he didn't mind helping a man out, but he wasn't running a tramp hotel either, and since he was a preacher, they were likely to get more traffic than most anyway. If one did come to the door, they would try to give him something if they could, but there were many times they just didn't have anything to give. My mother once watched her mother give a man the bowl of cornbread batter she was stirring up for supper, the only thing she had that she could give him. Her mother didn't like the looks of the man when he came to the door asking for something to eat, wouldn't let him in the house, so told him to come around to the kitchen window where she handed the bowl and the wooden mixing spoon out to him. He sat under the shade tree in the yard and spooned the batter into his mouth, left the empty bowl in the grass, and went on his way. They would pass by most often in the late afternoon or early evening, headed for the camping place they had about a mile away behind the cemetery at the edge of town. The camp was just a clearing in some scrub pine where they could have a fire they had put a couple of lean-tos with some old sheet tin and lumber scraps and tar paper. Sometimes people would take a box of old clothes or some food out and leave it there for them. My mother always knew she was adopted, doesn't remember anybody telling her, and her mother reminded her of it often enough. They had gotten her at an orphanage in Louisville. She says that at some point she began to be afraid, 
afraid that if her mother and father had gotten her at an orphanage, then they could take her back any time they wanted, any time she did something that made them sorry they had gotten her. And she would wonder, of course, where her real mother and father were. She figured that her mother must have died because mothers don't just give their children away, but she thought her father might still be out there somewhere. She started to wonder whether he might be one of them, if he might come walking down the tracks one evening and see her and stop for her. He would tell her other mother and father that he had come to get her, to take her back home. She would go inside and gather up her belongings while he waited for her. She would come out and kiss her other mother and father and tell them thank you. They would be crying. And then the two of them would set off together, disappearing down the tracks. She started keeping all her important things, her pinky and blue boy paper dolls, the painted thimbles her grandmother had given her, her Sunday hair clips, in a shoebox under her bed that she could just pick up and walk out with if she had to. She started sitting on the back steps as late into the evening as she was let to, watching the tracks. She wondered if there was a hobo sign that meant, stop here, your lost daughter lives here. She wondered whether he would stop if he saw it scratched into one of the fence slats. One evening, she and a couple of her friends snuck down the tracks to the cemetery to spy on the hobo camp. They hid in the trees and watched them, dark shadows shaped like men sitting, leaning into their fire, holding their hands over it, hunched against the chill, their faces and their hands lit up. They scared her, the look of them. That night and several nights afterwards, she lay awake as long as she could, not wanting to sleep, afraid that she would dream of them, stepping out of the darkness. But then she began to think that if her real father were one of them, that is how he would come to her, out of the black trees and across the tracks toward her, his face lit yellow and flickering, his body of shadow, his shining hands reaching for her, She knew that she would still go to him. Wow, Tony, I have read this poem before and once was enough, I never forgot it. And I think it is so visual. I mean, these are experiences that are foreign to me, every single one. And I am still able to be emotionally connected and to picture how how are you able to do that what makes your writing so visual thank you for that i appreciate that i'll take that as a compliment um um i was lucky to grow up in a very visually and tactilely interesting world (laughs) as you might imagine it's a world that uh, has disappeared and especially the world of my parents Uh, the world that I'm trying to uh, retrieve and preserve in my writing these days because I think it's a world that had value and and that needs to be remembered. Uh, I've always been blessed to to be uh, visually uh, engaged in the world. Uh, I'm a frustrated painter. I'm not a frustrated pianist. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, my work has always come from, 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 from trying to see and record and preserve what I see. It's as simple as that. So what else can you tell us about this manuscript? Well, as I told you when I first uh, first sent it by you, it's a it's a work that I've been needing to write for for a very long time. My uh, my family story is is modest and humble. Uh, it's it's not an exciting story, not a story of adventure, but it's a story of of people, uh, good people trying to live a good life in hard circumstances. And uh, uh, it took me a very long time to find the voice and the words and the maturity to honor those people uh, and their stories uh, 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 as fully as I felt I needed to. Uh, and thanks to you, Katrina, you encouraged me to pursue this work when I showed you some initial, some initial pieces of it. And I'm so grateful to you for that because, again, this is a book that needed to be written for my sake and I think for the sake of people who would have an interest in it. I so look forward to reading it. Thank you so much for the trust. I appreciate it. What can you tell us about Coleman's Son? Oh, that's my newest uh, newest chapbook. Uh, it's uh, it's a uh, somewhat different work. I think I would call that m m more more visionary rather than visual. <laughs> it's. Uh, it's actually, Katerina, it's actually the first act of a play that I've just finished composing that is looking for a stage. But uh, Coleman's Son uh, uh, is, um, is actually in the form of a testimony which takes place at a church service. And the church service is the play. Uh, so it's kind of an introduction to some theological explorations that uh, are in store for those who are, who are interested in the play. And I happen to know that you're participating with this book in the Kentucky Book Festival this year. I am. Uh, it's been, I think, 20 years since I participated in that festival, and I'm so glad to be back. Uh, I've been out of writing uh, and publishing for a very long time, and I've been away from Kentucky for a very long time, and I'm so glad to be, to be back and to return with, uh, with some new words on paper. I would love to hear a little bit from Coleman's son. How about I read... A couple of pages? Absolutely. Would that be, would that be all right? Yeah. All right. Whatever makes sense. Uh, Coleman son, a testimony. Psalm 102, verse 7. I lie awake. I am like a lonely bird on the housetop. One-eyed bone sees all you do. Blind crow tells it. Old scratch fiddle plays the tune. Old poor coat dances. I seen the man made of fire in the drift mouth. Seen this tree of lightning come walking up out of the earth. Hell wind, cool and quiet, as spilled water soothing out behind him. I seen him sidle down the tracks apiece, blind crow on his shoulder, one-eyed bone, his staff tapping out his steps along the cross ties. Blind crow singing old blind crow song. Fire burn, ash fly, spit a spark in your eye.
I seen them disappear around a bend yon the turpentine woods. Ain't nothing but thornbrush and jack tangle all down in there anyway. Sun goes down. Man made a fire be up and about. Come down the road looking in the windows. Blind crow singing lullabies, singing for the children. Oh, at night the sun slides under the hills to stoke the devil's furnaces that burn the belly of the earth to make the coal the miners dig. I seen old Strawboss Moon up there, though, keeping his cool eye out on everything. Man made a fire say, blind crow, bird of my grandfather's bones, tell me, what does the hell wind say, soothing out the drift mouth, cool and quiet as spilled water? What does the hell wind say? Blind crow say, hell wind whispers, oh, my children, down in the bottom of the earth is a city, a city made of blue bones and rock candy. Down in the flint rock, down in the coal break, down in the earth fire. This is where your fathers go down. This is where they go down. Man made a fire say, Oh, my one-eyed bone, hole in the earth so deep could be grave for many a man. Incredible voice, Tony. Thank you. <laughs> I can't take credit for it. I was born with it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I mean this in many different ways. So I have one last question for you, and that's a question that I ask everybody who teaches creative writing workshops each once in a while, and that is, what is the most important thing you teach your students? If you want them to remember one thing from your class or workshop, what is it? A quote, a quote from the painter Robert Irvin, who wrote an article back in the 70s with this title, To truly see is to forget the name of the thing you're seeing. Kind of to become one with it, right? Uh, we have to unlearn what we've been taught about <sighs> what the world is and what it looks like and see it afresh and see it new. That's, that's the visual part. Right, <laughs> right. And we have to forget our language in order to truly see. And then once we see, then we can bring the language back to describe it. But we've got to get rid of the language first. Love it. Thank you very much, anyway, Tony. Thank you, Katerina, so much.